Well, once again, a big thank you to the music team for leading us in song. And I like the combination of those last two songs, in particular, the gospel song, So Simple. I wish they'd put the word resurrection in there somewhere and then it would be perfect. But so simple and indicative of the fact that the message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, can be boiled down to such a simple message that even the very young can come to know and can come to believe and can come to be part of the family of God. And that second song, I love it. I think of it as a song, it's kind of like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, but freer to use more New Testament language. And a reminder that the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you begin to tease out its implications, has cosmic significance as the summation of all of history and its yearnings is looking forward to eternity and and to glory. And so whether you're a, a young child just coming to understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, or whether you're the brightest mind who's dedicated their entire life to trying to trace out the implications of the gospel, it is a subject that is never exhausted, never exhausting when we really understand what we're talking about. And this morning, we are going to touch base with the heart of the gospel itself as the heart of the appeal of the epistle of John in his gospel. And to honor that, I pray that you would join me in standing to honor the reading of God's word. We'll be in John chapter 20, finishing the last two verses of that chapter. Beginning next time, we will be launching into the final chapter of the gospel of John. But this morning we'll be looking at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Would you read with me? Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning and we we turn our attention to this simple call to faith in Jesus Christ, and we do so with anticipation because we trust your word. We trust its revelation of Jesus Christ, and we understand that because of his life, death, and resurrection, indeed, he is the one who is worthy, that our faith is in a Savior who has accomplished and fulfilled that which he set out to do so that we might have assurance in this life, hope for the life that is to come. And may we this morning find great delight and great encouragement in being reminded of those truths that we have been studying all throughout this gospel that point infallibly to your son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we talk about the gospel, obviously we're not talking about something that is incidental to the Christian faith, right? It is the Christian faith. This is what it means to be a Christian, is one who has confessed the gospel as declared in Scripture. We are a people of God because we are a people of that common confession. And so it is of no surprise that the subject of the gospel has been one under constant attack, under constant assault since it was first proclaimed. And throughout even the history of the church, it has been wrestled with, whether it was in the early days of the church, 
wrestling with who is this Jesus and what was he really? Is he a man pretending to be God? Is he God pretending to be a man? Is he God stuck inside of a man? Is he man and stuck inside of a God? What is Jesus? Fast forward to the Middle Ages and the Reformation as the church wrestles with by what is a man justified in the eyes of God? What really makes us right in his eyes? Is it the grace of God alone? Is it our works alone? Is it some combination thereof? How are we to understand the basis by which man is declared not guilty in the eyes of a holy judge? Or even in modern times, as the authority and inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture have come under assault, is our faith based off of reliable historical revelation? Or is this merely just a guide, a sign point that points us to a personal, experiential, emotional communion with the divine that we can, we can share an affinity for, but my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. My Jesus is my Jesus and your Jesus can be your Jesus. And this morning, John is going to call us to take a stand on an objective declaration on something that is clear and is to be understood rightly and is to be the center of what it means to be a Christian. And by defining what a Christian is, it also defines what a Christian is not. And it sums up all that we've studied in the Gospel of John. If you've been looking at your bulletins each week, you can see that theme we've been tracing, John, the Gospel of Light and Life. John's Gospel has shown us the revelation of the light of the world. It has also unfolded for us the promise of life for those who live in that light. And so if the resurrection of Jesus is the mountain peak of John, then this passage is the flag planted on top of that mountain peak. And the point could not be more clear. After 20 chapters of testimony, John is calling for a verdict. He is calling for us to make a decision based off of what we have heard. The Gospels are not less than history. They're not less than history. John, along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us accurate historical accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the Gospels are decidedly more than history. The purpose of the Gospels is to both proclaim good news and to call for a decision. And so what will we do in response to the light we have been given and how will we enjoy the life offered to us in Jesus that is the subject of our consideration this morning, as your message title says, to look at a light to believe and a life of belief. And in verses 30 to the first part of verse 31, John begins by calling us to believe the signs that he has been scattering throughout his book. Believe the signs. If you're taking notes this morning, that's your first set of blanks. And he opens verse 30 by simply saying, therefore... He's hinging this call on the basis of what he has just said. And I think he's primarily looking back to two specific things. And the first is the confession of Thomas that we just read. When Thomas finally falls on his knees before Christ and says, My Lord and my God. And as we saw last week and Ben pointed out, Thomas ought to be known more for his confession than he is for his doubting 
my Lord and my God. It's as though John is saying, see, if you've been following along and I showed you Jesus did this and he did this and he did this and he did this and he died and he rose again. And this is the natural conclusion that you would look at Jesus and you would say, my Lord and my God. So therefore, but I think he's also pivoting off of one other thing. And that is not only the confession of Jesus, excuse me, of Thomas, but the response of Jesus. Because as you recall, when Jesus hears this confession from Thomas, he responds by saying, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And that's a poignant exchange for us. Thomas finally is at the point of declaring this unabashed and inevitable conclusion that one must come to after witnessing the resurrected Jesus. But that confession is followed by this hinge that pivots John from the scene of Jesus once again in an upper room surrounded by his disciples. And now it casts light down through time to us today. To the age-long purpose of this book for those who will read but who were not there to see. Jesus takes the confession of Thomas that was rooted in Thomas's personal encounter with Jesus, and he looks ahead to those whose similar faith will rest not on their own eyewitness experience, but on faith in the gospel witness recorded in Scripture. And he says to us, how blessed are you. In other words, John isn't building his story to this big crescendo and then pulling that classic storyteller move of just kind of going, ah, it just would have had to have been there. No. He is calling us not just to the story of the gospel. He is calling us into the story of the gospel. And like any good persuader, he has done so by carefully curating his case to keep it laser-focused on the intended effect. And he lays out that curated case in verse 30. Verse 30 continues, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And so John tells us here, it's an open admission that this book was not meant to be an exhaustive historical account. It is looking, if you will, at the life of Jesus through a keyhole. Just a sliver of what was done is seen. And John's going to remind us of that again at the very end of his gospel in John 21, 25, when he says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And I really don't think that's much of an overstatement. If you think of the books that have been written on, on a single life changed or, or unexpectedly healed or that has been brought back from the brink through some unexpected means, imagine if that story were then multiplied over on a massive scale. Consider, for example, the impact that Jesus made even just in his ministry on the north side of Israel, as recounted in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 4, 23 to 24, speaking of Jesus in Galilee and the area around excuse me, Syria, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. 
But then again, a few chapters later, he comes back to the same region after healing Peter's mother-in-law. It says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. And again, a few chapters later, in the same region, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. Imagine what that would have been like. Jesus changed the course of history in that region through his miraculous work. Families plunged into poverty because they relied on a breadwinner who was too ill to work suddenly were given hope. And those who would have died are made well again. They go on to get married and start whole family trees that would not have existed otherwise. Imagine what that would look like if Jesus did something like that here in Spokane. Jesus arrives in town. He begins his itinerary in the morning. He goes through the wards of Deaconess, Sacred Heart, Shriners, St. Luke's, Rockward, and Cancer Care, Spokane. An online check later that afternoon shows their patient load is 0%. He then goes to the Riverfront Park for a time of teaching about the kingdom of God to the, to the gathered crowds. And, and then in the afternoon continues by visiting counseling and psychiatric care of Spokane, the Tamarack Center, the VA, Holy Family, and Providence Hospitals. Once again, every bed is left empty. It's an absolute nightmare for the insurance companies to straighten out. <laughs> After more teaching, he spends his evening touring the many assisted living and long-term care facilities, curing dementia, broken hips, and a host of other ailments that had taken independence from hundreds. And those who remain are only there because they like the food. <laughs> what impact would something like that have on our city? can't even imagine it. It's hard to fathom. And now imagine that doesn't happen once or twice, but three times in rapid succession. How fascinating it would have been to sit at John's feet and hear him tell tale after tale about the wonders he had heard and seen while traveling around with Jesus. So then why include so relatively few miracles and signs in his gospel? Why curate it down to this? Well, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the goal of John's gospel was not to give us an exhaustive catalog, but a sufficient selection to prove John's central thesis and to bring the reader to a point of responsible decision. And so in the beginning of verse 31, John points to the sufficient selection that he has given us of the signs that point to Jesus. There were many things, John says, which I did not write, but verse 31, these have been written so that you may believe or you should believe. So what made the cut? Well, I invite you on that brief tour back through memory lane, that little roadmap graphic that we used some time ago. It all began when John showed us Jesus at a wedding in Cana when he turned water into wine and demonstrated his creative power in chapter 2. Jesus then cleansed the temple, demonstrating a singular zeal for righteousness and for authority over the people. You notice there he also created the perfect opportunity to discredit his ministry. All you had to do is point out any flaw in character or act of hypocrisy on the part of Jesus and you would have had him. And indeed, Jesus' detractors spent their entire uh, public attacks on Jesus trying to do that very thing, and they were unable to. 
In chapter 4, we see Jesus raising the stakes when he healed a nobleman's son on the verge of death. And he did so from afar. This wasn't Jesus who had his secret magic potion that he could dole out to those who got close enough. Jesus demonstrated the divine power to control and command disease from a distance. In chapter 5, he proved his power again when healing the man who had been crippled and ill and desperate for decades at the pool of Bethesda. Maybe, just maybe you could imagine, well, you know, a young boy in, in the full flower of youth, perhaps he would have recovered unexpectedly and it just happened to coincide with the words of Jesus, but not a man past the season of youth who has for so long been so far in the clutches of illness. This is divine miraculous power. Then in chapter 6, echoing the provision of manna from heaven in the Old Testament and cementing his claim to be the bread of life, Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of thousands with five loaves and two fish in chapter 6. And later in that chapter proves that not only the produce of the earth, but nature itself conforms to his will when Jesus casually walks across the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. In chapter 9, we see that miracle and sign rich in symbology take place where Jesus corrected the blindness of a man born blind. And it was a man, as the passage says, Jesus just happened to be passing by right after declaring that he was more ancient than Abraham and taking for himself the divine name for Yahweh, I am. And then that sign John reserves for the penultimate position before the great sign and that which leaves no doubt about the nature of this man Jesus, Lazarus, a man dead in the tomb for days, is called back from the dead in chapter 11. And all of that pointing, Jesus is not just some teacher. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He has authority, and he works the works of God with divine power, and that set the stage for, as I mentioned, the great sign, the most magnificent and significant sign, and ironically, one which was performed on Jesus by the Father. And Paul describes this sign with these words when he preached on this topic in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. And so to all the children in the room, pay attention in Sunday school. Otherwise, Paul might end up rebuking you someday for something that was read to you every Sabbath. Fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. No greater sign has ever or could ever be presented. 
to have faced the wrath of God, to have gone into the grave, and then to have been brought out from the tomb by the Father himself is a sign that will never be repeated. And against the backdrop of these signs, the words of Thomas come not as shocking blasphemy, but as inevitable truth, my Lord and my God. These are the things which John writes, and they are powerful things. These signs point to Jesus in a way that demands a response. And that demanded response is belief, and not only for Thomas, but for the world. As one commentator noted, we completely miss the point of John's gospel account if we think that it's some subjective effort to trace the development of the faith of the disciples and of John's own. This is not a book where John's like, hey, I just wanted to give you a little biographical insight into why I just feel so strongly about these things. It's not a matter for for historical curiosity. The purpose of John's gospel is to attest to the person of the Son of God in his ministry, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. That is what John is doing. And so it is, in short, to call us to believe. And I don't want to gloss over that word belief, especially as we come into that season of the year where you begin to see that word plastered on everything with no context. Do not forget that it is a common name for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ to simply refer to us as believers. What do we mean by that? I want to briefly make three observations about belief. The first is this, true belief, true belief as it is rightly understood is faith, is faith. The word belief simply means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. As it is used in the New Testament, the call to believe is a call to consider the message of the gospel to be true and therefore not only to consider it worthy of trust, but to actually trust it. Faith is that term that refers to belief laying hold of the thing believed in. As is often observed, it is only of those of you right now who are actually putting your weight on your chair that really believe it can hold you. Perhaps some of you have walked in and you've considered how old these chairs are, how often they've been jostled and moved and stacked and even toppled. Perhaps you're mindful of all the forces that have wreaked havoc on them over the years, wearing away at those tack welds that keep you from collapsing embarrassingly into the people behind you and yet perhaps you're saying despite all of those concerns i know statistically there's a very good chance this chair will bear my weight until the end of this service but i'm going to keep my weight on my feet anyway just in case that kind of belief is indeed a form of belief But it is not that which John or the authors of the New Testament have in mind, as James summarized so bluntly in James 2, 19 to 20. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Can you imagine, like, living with this guy? You foolish fellow! 
that faith without works is useless. James says, so you're going to come to me and say, yeah, you know, I find the, the presentation of the life of Jesus pretty compelling. I, I, I believe that on the whole, it's more likely than not. I think the preponderance of evidence leans in your direction. I'm just kind of not sure what I'm going to do about it. But in general, I agree with you. I think you're right. James says, that is the folly of the demons. That is no belief that is useful at all until it is accompanied by trust, by doing what must be done if in fact you do believe that these things are true. The Gospel of John has done us no good until we find ourselves on our knees with the confession of Thomas on our own lips, my Lord and my God. Which leads us to our next observation. We are responsible to believe. And, not but, and God remains sovereign. Our church is unembarrassed to declare the sovereignty of God and the plan of salvation. We amen our way all the way through that golden chain in Romans 8. You can too, because I'm quoting from Scripture, so it's just right there in the Bible. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Amen. These whom he predestined, he also called. Amen. These whom he called, he also justified. Amen. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Who gets all the glory for our salvation from its determination in eternity past to its culmination in glory in the future? All God, every time. No exceptions. And, not but, and... We are responsible to believe. We must be careful that we don't let our joyful celebration of one truth in Scripture tempt us to ignore other truths presented just as clearly. In John's Gospel alone, we see the word believe used as a command seven times, and altogether, as we've noted, the topic of belief occurs almost a hundred times. And so, to shorten what can be a very long conversation, and when I'd love to engage with you, if you would like, here's the bottom line. It is not completely clear to us how the sovereignty of God and the moral responsibility of man fit together. It is, however, very clear in Scripture that God is sovereign and that man is morally responsible. So when John tells us that he has written this account to make belief the only acceptable response, there is no dodging our responsibility. So by the authority of the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, I say to everyone here today, you must believe. And if you do not, you reject the only hope for any descendant of Adam to escape the personal moral responsibility of standing before a holy God someday and having to give an account for your life as measured by the standard of perfection. And that is an examination that will be survived by no man or woman who comes on his or her own merits. Our only hope is belief, but not just any belief. Thirdly, belief always takes an object. Belief takes an object. Belief is not a virtue on its own. The value of belief is entirely determined by that which is believed in. To believe the earth is flat 
that gravity will go easy on you on Thursdays, or that politics is the best path to human happiness. These can all be matters of sincerest belief, but they do not make a person virtuous. In fact, those very beliefs would make you a fool. John wants to make sure that we aren't confused about what his gospel is calling us to believe. And so he spells it out for us very clearly. I have written what I have written so that you should believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John here gives us the marrow of the Christian faith. Our belief is in a person who fulfilled a specific role because he was of a particular nature. John tells us to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to affirm the historicity of Jesus. We don't believe in the idea of an inspirational figure from mythology. We believe in the person, Jesus, who lived and actually did what John says he did. We are declaring to the world and we are believing in that which we hold to be historical truth. We also see in this belief in Jesus the humanity of Jesus. We believe in the man Jesus, not some apparition from heaven, not the idea of the divine, but somebody who was born to a virgin and was in every way like unto us without sin. When we believe in Jesus, we declare the exclusivity of Jesus. We join with the apostles as they declared in Acts 4 that there is no other name given among men underneath heaven whereby we must be saved. There is one object for belief that will produce salvation and that object is Jesus. All paths do not lead to heaven. Only one. And that path is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but here, through me. We believe in Jesus. We must also believe, as John says, that Jesus is the Christ. And again, growing up in the church, it's easy to think that Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. But Christ is not a name, it is a title. It is the Greek word for the Old Testament word, Messiah, the one who saves. And John says, believe that he is that one. And that means to understand that Jesus is that fulfillment of the promises of God that have been throughout Scripture. That when John, that when God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15 and promised a seed that would crush the serpent, that it was Jesus. That when God spoke to Abraham and promised him a seed through which would come blessing to the nations, that that seed was Jesus. When God spoke to David and told him that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever, that that was Jesus. When God talked to Isaiah and said that the servant would come and he would suffer and he would die and he would rise for the justification of the many, that that was Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one who saves. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that, that it's all about him. And implicit in that is understanding then that in an entire sea of humanity, 
in which we all in into the very edges into the crooks and the crannies are found to be needing salvation there is one single exception who does not need to be saved but is in fact mighty to save and that that is Jesus and therefore to believe that Jesus is the savior is to believe that he in fact did accomplish the obedience that his father sent him to perform that brings that salvation about. It is to affirm the substitutionary sacrifice for sin of Jesus, that the sinless one was made to be a curse for us and that on him was poured the wrath of God and that he died and that he rose and that the price that needed to be paid was paid in full. We must believe in Jesus. We must believe Jesus is the Christ. And we must believe Jesus is the Son of God. And this is that title that John develops across his gospel uniquely to teach us that Jesus is not the Father, but that he is one with the Father in the fullness of his Godhead. It is not okay to simply believe in a good man who died an honorable death. Jesus is God or Jesus is not a sufficient Christ. And John began laying that out for us from the very first words of his gospel. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. From the very beginning, John says, I want to tell you about the one who is with God and is God from all eternity past. I want to tell you about the creator God in whom was all the power to bring into existence everything that there is. And I have the incredible privilege to tell you that that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And verse 18, so that no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is John's purpose. God took on human flesh and showed us the Father and I want to show you the Son. So there is only one application you can take from such a thing. Believe. Believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Will you not, I beg of you, believe in this simple truth today? I call to every man, every woman, every child here today, will you accept the credibility of the signs John has laid out for us and heed the call to come to Jesus and find a true Savior who can bring you peace with God? Do you have questions? Do you have objections? Bring them. The Word of God is unafraid to give an account for your intellectual, your philosophical, scientific, moral, ethical, experiential objections. 
Come and find answers. Talk to me. Talk to another pastor. Talk to someone sitting beside you this morning. Talk to your life group leader. If we don't have the answer at the ready, we'll find it for you and get it to you. Settle your objections, but come. Do not let the objections be an obstacle. Do you have fears and uncertainties? Hold them up against the teaching of Jesus and see if you really have need for alarm. Is Jesus not gentle and humble in heart? Is his yoke not easy and his burden not light? Will he not give you rest for your troubled soul? Or perhaps this morning you are hiding behind guilt and shame over your sin, afraid to bring that and expose it to the piercing eyes of Christ. Well, notice this. You cannot spare the Savior the embarrassment of your sin by hiding because he already sees all things and knows your every thought and your every action. Yet to you, even you, the free gift of salvation can be immediately received without reservation at the instant of faith. Just as God was gracious to the sinner standing before you in the pulpit. So let guilt not carry you away from the eyes of grace to only later tragically face the gaze of wrath. Instead, let guilt carry you to that place where all is forgiven. So is there anything then which presents a sure obstacle to the salvation which is found in Jesus Christ? Yes. Unbelief. Unbelief. We do not often have in our church what is often referred to in church circles as an altar call. Part of that is our desire is not to create an emotionally or socially manipulative atmosphere. But with the text before us, I think it's a grave error not to make an earnest invitation to anyone here today who does not believe in Jesus to do so. In the words of Paul, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we have one final point to consider this morning. But while we do so, I invite you to do business with God. Reflect on your need of a savior. Reflect on God's provision of salvation in Jesus. Ask God for the grace to believe in him. And when we have closed this morning and sung our last song, would you come forward and find me or find another pastor or, or find somebody in here and let us share in the joy of what God is doing in you. Or perhaps this is the morning where the best thing you can do is take the courage to bring that objection you realize has become an excuse to not deal seriously with the claims of Christ and say, I'm willing to actually get this out on the table and take Jesus seriously. Would you come? We are not offended. God is not offended by any genuine question. And so for the moment, I leave you to your consideration as we look briefly at the end of verse 31. Having been called to believe, we now are called to live in that belief. Live in the Savior in your outline this morning. John goes on to say, believe in these things and that believing. And so what comes here at the end is a consequence of what comes before. This is for those who are believing, who have crossed the threshold from unbelief to faith. And for such as these, here is the promise that you may have life in his name. It is a life that John has been telling us about throughout his entire gospel. It's a life that has its origin in Christ. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. It's a life that comes through believing. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a life that comes with the hope of resurrection. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It is a life that was only possible by the death of Jesus. John 6.53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. It is a life that is of exceeding quality. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's a life that once granted can never be taken away or forfeited. John 10.28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And it is a life that at its heart consists of this, a true relationship with God the Father and with God the Son. As John told his disciples in the upper room in John 17:3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Dear believer today, are you alive in his name? Those who have come to Jesus that is true have a life that is guaranteed to them by the promises of God, regardless of how they feel on any given day. It is yours. However, eternal life is not merely something that the scriptures speak of as a possession that we are to own or, or a future we are to anticipate, but it is a present reality that is to affect and is to shape how we live. What it means to, to experience the joy of being a child of God. And so if we are trying to find our happiness, indeed our life, in anything but Jesus, we shall find our joy and our abundance draining ever away. And perhaps that is where you are at today. So perhaps this is the opportunity for you to realize you have been given the fountain of living water, but you have not refreshed yourself in that water for far too long. In prayer, in his word, in Christian fellowship, in the gathering of the saints, in obedience, in hospitality, in service, let us remember again what it is like to experience life in his name. To live as Christians, to live as believers. And I end this morning by giving John the final word from his letter, 1 John chapter 5 where he says this, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he, does not, he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. John's very black and white. You got two options. You believe in Jesus or you call God a liar. Those are your options. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So he who has the son has the life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Would you pray with me?
Father, what a privilege it is to be given your revelation. We are not like some who are ever wondering if we will be good enough, if we will have grace enough to receive the favor of God. You have told us exactly how we may be declared justified now and forever, and it is entirely based off of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so today we have come to declare his name. We've come to do that in song. We've come to do that in our partaking of the Lord's table. We've come to do that in our time around your word. And we pray, Lord, now that we would do that in how we live our life this week, that we would go out and have life in his name as a way in which we make our decisions and as a way in which we spend our time and as the way in which we control our hearts and govern our minds. I pray, Lord, that this world, when they see us, would see what it looks like to not be dead, but to have life and to have it abundantly, even in the middle of the sufferings of this present world. We pray, Lord, for that and the effective ministry that we have to our neighbors and to this city. We pray that, Lord, in the way in which we support and come alongside those who are taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And we look forward, Lord, to all those that have yet to be brought into your family and the opportunity that we have as witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ to be used, if it be your will, in some small way as a tool in accomplishing that. And so I pray, Lord, for any here this morning who have not believed that you would grant to them the gift of faith to open their eyes, bring about regeneration, draw them to love you as you have loved them. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in Christ, help us this week to act like it, that believer would not merely be a title that points to our hypocrisy, but it would be a word to explain the reality to a watching world. And this we ask in Christ's name, amen. invite you to stand as we will close in song and again repeat my invitation. If you can be served in any way, please come forward afterwards and we would love to talk.